The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, and I just got a text uh, from Holly Fletcher, who says she knows you and sends her best. Awesome. Um, uh, all right. We are going to get started momentarily. Um, welcome to people who are filing in. And um just going to leave uh, about, give about 30 seconds for zoom to populate and we're going to start all right um give it just a second it says it is now streaming which means the blue go live button has to go live, go blue, and there it is. And we're live. It is Monday, October 16th, 8.01 p.m. I am here with Kristen Dumay, author of the most uh, fascinating book, Jesus and John Wayne. I met Kristen... I want to say about six months ago, maybe mm-hmm. a little more, uh, at a uh, conference. We were randomly seated next to each other at a dinner. I was absolutely riveted by her account of this book. And when uh, and she spoke at the conference and was riveting in that context. And so I made a mental note to myself to read Jesus and John Wayne. And uh, I you know, when I set up Dogshirt TV, I had this list of books I've been meaning to read, and I was going to use uh, the fact of this show to, you know, force myself to actually read things rather than doom scroll and um, talk to the authors. And so she was one of the first people I got in touch with. Um, Kristen, this is mostly for new books. Your book isn't that new. But uh, welcome to Dog Shirt TV, and congratulations on a truly remarkable uh, uh, piece of cultural and historical scholarship. Thank you. I, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I want to start uh, with a few definitions because these are there are terms that we toss around in this conversation that um, uh, are not. Uh, their meaning is not obvious to a lot of people. And so for present purposes, the most important of these terms is the word evangelical. When you say evangelical in the book, what does it mean and what does it not mean? Yeah, I'll start with what it doesn't mean, because I'm kind of pushing back against some of the scholarship and some of the kind of self-perceptions of evangelical leaders in particular, who like to define evangelicalism primarily by its theology. So they'll say things like evangelicalism is about um, conversionism, this born-again experience, and about 
um, biblicism, the centrality of the scriptures, crucicentrism is a term they use, the centrality of the cross of Christ, right? That's how they're defining, and they kind of have this rubric. And uh, I intended to define evangelical in that way. Most historians do. And then as I was doing the research for this book, I kept realizing this is not helpful. This is not really descriptive of the movement that I'm examining. And so I don't define evangelicalism as much as I describe it. Theology is a part, but it's often not the central part, because if you look at surveys, um, a lot of evangelicals don't know much theology, right? A lot count as heretics. And, um, and evangelicalism is about so much more. So I really describe it as a consumer culture and as a, a cultural and uh, religious and a political movement. And when you do that, um, as a consumer culture, I look at things like Christian radio and popular Christian books, or Christian publishing, Christian conferences. And then you can start to see the whiteness of white evangelicalism in particular. You can see the political and cultural commitments. And that's really the evangelicalism that I'm describing as a cultural historian, looking at the everyday experience of American evangelicals. And and so how would you characterize it as a cultural movement and as a uh, religious adjacent movement mm -hmm. and as a, so what, what distinguishes an evangelical from a non-evangelical but deeply committed Christian? Yeah, uh, I say that the degree to which they're participating in this evangelical culture, evangelical consumer culture. So, uh, you know, if you listen to Christian radio, you are immersed in evangelicalism. Uh, so rather than saying, are you a real evangelical or not? I look at the de degree to which people are really immersed in this world. If you're if you're shopping at Christian bookstores, if you read Christian publishing, if you go to an evangelical church, yes, but you don't have to go to an evangelical church, right, to be immersed in this value system. Now, as a historian, I also describe it historically. Like we can we can go back to as I do in the book, the National Association of Evangelicals founding in 1942. I trace the story of Billy Graham. I move on through kind of the, the SBC and more recent history. So there's there's an institutional history here as well. Um, but I think what many scholars have missed and just many observers is how the theological issues that maybe were debated inside seminaries and you know from pastors um, don't necessarily define what it means to be evangelical for a whole swath of the U.S. population. Right? And that's where you really have to look at, you know, evangelicals love reading. They buy so many books. They have small groups where they meet together and they talk about these books every week, every month. What is God saying to them through these books? Some people are listening to Christian radio 8, 10, 12 hours a day, especially Christian women. What kinds of messaging are they getting? What are they learning about God and about what it is to follow God and obey God in this moment? So you open the book with a very brief account to which you never return of your own engagement with this movement. Uh, in the introduction, you describe how you're kind of a creature of this movement. You never return to it throughout the book where you are uh, uh, quite critical of the direction the movement has gone and the uh, specifically the uh, construction of gender within the movement. Um, I'm curious, you 
you teach at a a, a religious uh, college. Your uh, your do you consider yourself part of this movement, adjacent to this movement, a former part of the movement, an internal critic? What's the relationship between Kristen Dumay and the movement that she's <laughs> writing about? Yeah, I mean, it should be a simple, simple question with a simple answer, but it's it's not. And you're right. I um, the, I think it's a, a couple paragraphs where I, I kind of identify myself in the beginning of the book. And that was only because my editor coerced me into doing that. I had no intention. Of, well, let of the record that. reflect that I am in no <laughs> sense coercing. I, I asked. And if you don't want to address, oh the no, question, no, I, I could definitely address it. No, my reason for not placing myself in this story was, um, in part, I wanted to be sure that everybody realized the genre here—that this was a work of scholarship. It was a work of historical study. Uh, it, it's not memoir, right? And although I was familiar with some of these figures and some of these movements, by no means all of them. And so it's a work of scholarly research. And in Christian publishing, uh, especially when it comes to women writers, there is a kind of expectation that your authority comes from your personal story and no expectation that it comes to rigorous scholarship. And so I, was, I think I was kind of pushing back against that a bit. Um, I would describe myself, uh, you gave me the word, evangelical adjacent. Um, but it's tricky. And this, this, um, it's not just about me, but if you understand kind of my difficulty here, you understand about evangelicalism because I'm a member of the Christian Reformed Church and I teach at Calvin University. So yes, I'm a Calvinist. Um, and technically the Christian Reformed Church is a member of the National Association of Evangelicals. So you could consider me technically an evangelical. The way, um, I define evangelical, right? It, it in, in terms of participating in this culture, I've always been on the very edge. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. Um, my mom was a Dutch immigrant. Um, I, I, I always in this reformed tradition where I did not grow up identifying as evangelical. I actually grew up identifying against evangelicals. My little tradition, we considered ourselves um, much smarter than evangelicals and better than evangelicals. And we were all Dutch. And so, uh, you know, this, this kind of American identity, a little bit at arm's length. What I will say, though, is in the last uh, decades, even over the course of my lifetime, my own kind of distinctive uh, religious tradition has pretty much been swamped by evangelicalism so that most people in my denomination are de facto evangelicals. Most churches are. They really lost much of their distinctive theology, and now they're, they're conservative white evangelicals. So positioning myself in this story, evangelical adjacent or on the very edges of it uh, is probably the most accurate description. So a lot of people in the post- Trump election period had this big debate about was this fundamentally about race or was it fundamentally about, you know, economic anxieties? That was the sort of caricature of the debate. This book, it seems to me, blows up that whole debate and says it's fundamentally about images of masculinity and uh, and as an ancillary matter to that well, or as a as a corollary to that, it's about gender. Um, and I want you to walk us through that thesis because it's it's actually counterintuitive to a lot of people who are, you know, 
kind of have spent the last five or six years saying, okay, the Trumpist movement is a revival of of Southern segregationism, or it's a you know a form of Buchananism kind of, or George Wallaceism kind of run amok, or it's actually we should understand where people are coming from because it's really about economic displacement. There aren't a whole lot of people who've said, wait a minute, this is really at its core about gender. And so make the case. Sure. Yeah, I would first qualify that a little bit and say, you know, if you're talking about gender, you are also talking about race and you're also talking about class. Right. And so it's a facet that you can start to examine um, this larger cultural identity. It really is a matter of identity. And gender inside evangelicalism is really at the foundation level um, defining what it is to be um, evangelical, what it is to be a faithful Christian. And that kind of gender role has been defined historically, and this is what I show in the book, um, connected to conceptions of what it is to be American, specifically Christian American, right? So so it is about um, masculinity in the defense of white Christian nationalism, really, is one way to describe it in a nutshell. So you can go back to the Cold War era, and you can go back to Billy Graham, right? You can see kind of the the origins, I mean, of some sort, you can keep going back further and, and see um, antecedents, but uh, of, of a kind of Cold War masculinity um, in the late 40s, right, very early Cold War, to defend America, you needed strong men, traditional families, right, you needed strong um, military and all of these things were wrapped together in this kind of Christian nationalism that was extremely popular at the time, not just among American evangelicals. So in the late 40s and early 50s, this is just the time when evangelicals are trying to kind of um, uh, 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 reassert their influence on American culture after the fundamentalist modernist controversies had, had seemed to kind of kick them to the curb. And so at this moment in the early Cold War, they moved to the center of things. Um, Billy Graham in the 1950s, in and out of the Eisenhower White House, right? They're at the very center until the 1960s happen. And all of a sudden you see this unraveling and many Americans start to question American goodness, American greatness. You have the civil rights movement, you have the feminist movement, the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement. And it's in that context that white evangelicals double down on these quote unquote traditional values, but they do so in an oppositional way, rather than uniting them with fellow Cold War Americans in the 60s, it's going to divide them from other Americans. And they really carry this sense of loss, loss of influence, loss. They have the sense of marginalization, and they have the sense that we need to take back the country, restore Christian America, make America great again. And to do that, restoring traditional God-ordained social hierarchies gender hierarchies is absolutely key. So you have a very striking paragraph, both at the beginning, uh, in the introduction, but then uh, in your chapter about the election of Trump, in which you basically argue that people who looked from the outside in horror at the uh, embrace of Trump by evangelicals who thought, how can they be betraying everything they've stood for? 
actually missed the point that the, that he in fact represented in important ways what they had come to stand for and that there was nothing that surprising about their uh, uh, enjoyment uh, and f- sense of representation yeah. by Trump. So go down the list. What are the things that that Trump represented that meaningfully stood for things that evangelicals yeah. or white conservative evangelicals anyway had come to admire or 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 desire from from leadership? Well, I'll pick I'll pick this up historically right where I left off, which was to kind of restore Christian America, to restore the value system that they felt was slipping away, that in some cases was slipping away. Um, there was a fix, and that was the reassertion of white patriarchal authority. Right. Think about the Vietnam War, think about feminism and think about civil rights and kind of parental rights, the reassertion of white patriarchal authority that would fix things. And um, if you if you go on through time, then you can see how this kind of rugged vision of white manhood and it was very specifically white. It did not extend beyond uh, white conceptions of masculinity became elevated to a sense of heroic manhood and also godly masculinity. You can see all these books on Christian masculinity that start popping up, particularly by the late 90s and, and just this um, booming industry post 9-11 that, that pits the, the um, true Christian man as a warrior. God is a warrior. God, men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. And these become, these sell millions of copies, these books, right? And it just becomes more and more aggressive and militant. And it's, it's linked to this idea of Christian nationalism, this us versus them mentality again, and us versus them, the divisions run inside our country. It's no longer a cold war where the enemy is on the outside primarily the enemy is now secular humanists feminists democrats right and so the assertion of this aggressive militant manhood god-ordained masculinity will restore order and the ends will justify the means and that is really important here everything becomes a battle right when you're called to be a warrior everything becomes a battle that made a lot of sense. It resonated deeply post 9-11. And that's where you have this rising Islamophobia and support of the Iraq war and support of preemptive war in general, support of militarism and all of that. But you also see it reflected in domestic politics. The more ruthless, the better. Because if God is on your side, anybody who is against you is against God. And so again, the ends will justify the means. And when you see Trump appearing on the scene in 2015. At first, there's a lot of uncertainty around him, right? Wasn't he just a Democrat? Is he really pro-life? There's a lot of questions. As early as August 2015, you start to see popular white evangelical support for Trump. First surveys came out and the evangelical elites weren't buying it. (laughs) They're like, no, this isn't true. I don't know a single pastor who supports this guy. That was Russell Moore. And it was, it was a populist support, right? Grassroots support, and it builds. And so by the time of, um, you know, when he really secures their support, secures the nomination in the fall of 2016, the rhetoric around Trump is just like the rhetoric I had read in those popular books on Christian manhood about needing a warrior to fight. Trump 
in their words, was their ultimate fighting champion. He would do what needed to be done, right? And he would not be constrained by traditional Christian virtue. And that was why he was God's anointed one chosen for this moment, because it was such an urgent moment. The threat was so dire, right? This is the rhetoric that you heard over and over again. And so what I realized in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release, when everybody thought, okay, surely these family values, evangelicals cannot support this guy at this point, right? Um, And of course, we know what happened over and over again. It was proven, no, he was the right man for the job precisely because he wasn't constrained by traditional Christian virtues. He was going to fight for them. And that's exactly what he said he would do. He would protect them. He would fight for Christians. So that's really interesting. Uh, Before we, uh, I want to dive into a number of those points, but before we do, uh, Richard has a question. Richard, the floor is yours. Whoops. He may know Richard may not be here anymore. Oh, let me, let me try to bring him back. Richard, the floor is yours. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, so since you're at Calvin, um, I was curious uh, if you could comment on the particular conservative reform spin that we see on the views of gender. And I'm, I'm very familiar, for example, with John Piper. In fact, I used to go to his church years ago. Um, and I'm wondering, though, how those uh, differ for example, with what one encounters in, say, the SBC or in various Pentecostal or non-denominational churches? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, so I'm Reformed. I'm not really the Piper variant of Reformed. So <laughs> I'm Dutch Reformed. And and, yeah. and that was, um, there's some overlap, certainly, but uh, I, I kind of approached Piper, again, as a, as a bit of an outsider there. And um, what we see happening really in the 1990s and the 2000s is this growing unity. And that's something I map out in the book between the more charismatic strands and um, going back to kind of Edwin Lewis Cole, maximized manhood and so on, and the Piper strands and the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and the SBC. And so what you have happening is these formerly rather distinct traditions end up unifying around not so much theology or a particular um, a narrow slice of theology, which is to say, you know, speaking in tongues or um, premillennialism, postmillennialism or infant baptism or you know, the ins and outs of uh, various doctrinal issues. None of that matters. What matters is that they have a unity around patriarchal authority. This is the rise of complementarianism. And you see the reformed folks really being a kind of almost like a a kind of think tank, right? A stronger intellectual tradition there, kind of producing some of the theological defenses. Over in the SBC, you also have the the movement for inerrancy and the conservative takeover happening over the course of the 80s and completed by the 90s. And you have all of these different strands. And so what happens is what unifies them are the issues of really gender, patriarchy, female submission, and the broader political agenda. And that's what's the unifying factor here. So again, you have a kind of um, uh, erasing 
of the boundaries that used to matter a lot, separating traditions and a growing sense of unity and seeing themselves as part of this larger movement. And complementarianism is really at the, is, is a keystone for that, the basis of that unity. So I want to talk about John Wayne since he's sitting there over your right shoulder. But before we do, I want to ask you about the antecedents to this movement. I was talking to my older kid about this uh, after reading the book, and he made the point that there's some real connective tissue here between the period of the founding of the Boy Scouts and the sort of muscular Christianity yes. movement. Um, and, uh, and some of the ideation in this period around masculinity. And so I'm, I'm curious for your sense of, is there a through line between these movements or I, I, I know from the book that, there is a kind of reverence for Teddy Roosevelt in this yeah. in this movement. Is this a, a a thing they look back to, or is there a continuity between uh, between the muscular Christianity movements and the modern uh, white conservative evangelical movements? Um, you, there are similarities, but I would not say that there is a through line here. If I were to draw a through line, it would actually be a little bit earlier and to the American South, uh, a culture of honor and white masculinity. And I, I make um, just passing reference to that mostly because I, the book, it's a trade book and I, I couldn't go too far back. I was under some really strict uh, word limits and uh, it was... It, this, the story kind of, I wanted to start in the 70s. I thought, well, I really have to start in the 40s with the NAE. And then I thought, well, we need the fundamentalist modernist controversy in there. And then, you know, I, I just glanced back to the 19th century, mostly to show not a through line, but to show that things did not used to look this way. Uh, and so that you can find evangelical conceptions of masculinity that, that, privilege and prioritize self-restraint, not reckless masculinity. And then, yes, you do have this muscular Christianity movement. And I cover that briefly with Teddy Roosevelt. But I make the point that in the early 20th century, progressive liberal Protestants were as likely, even more likely to embrace this muscular Christianity than conservative Protestants too. In World War I, progressive or liberal Protestants were more likely to be Christian nationalists, you know, make the world safe for democracy. And conservative Protestants, Pentecostals or Charismatics, and many fundamentalists rejected Christian nationalism. They didn't think that a nation could be Christian and just look around you. Did it look like a Christian nation, right? So they they really, so that the, the kind of constellation of commitments that we recognize today was of more recent origin. So you can find then, you know, them looking back to Teddy Roosevelt, this kind of mythical Roosevelt, and liking to celebrate him as a hero in the same way that they would celebrate Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, right? Kind of the same level of you know, historical specificity, the same way that they like to celebrate Douglas MacArthur, right? These kind of heroes that they had, or just random cowboys or, you know, John Wayne. And, and so not necessarily a through line, but not entirely disconnected, but there's as much change over time as there is continuity if we go back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
All right. So over your right shoulder is the great man himself. And of course, I mean by that, not Jesus Christ, <laughs> but John Wayne. Um, and I got to say, I read the whole book. I still don't get it. He's an actor. <laughs> He's not any of the characters that he played. He wasn't an especially good guy. He wasn't especially religious. Um, does this whole movement not understand the difference between an actor and the character that he plays? Why the reverence for John Wayne? Not okay. even a good actor, I might add. <laughs> okay, no, those are fighting words, depending, right? <laughs> depending on your audience. Uh, let me just start off by saying, if I could have called this book Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, I probably, you know, I, I just couldn't make that. I didn't have quite the same ring to it. Uh, because uh, I, I'm going to come to Mel Gibson in a minute. Okay, yeah, because, you know, because that's kind of... Because the- that... The- you know, pardon me, that shit's fighting words to my Jewish soul here. Um, but 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 the book isn't called Jesus and the William Wallace character right, right. in Great Heart. Right, right. Well, yeah, it didn't really work. So what what the title suggests, and we'll get to John Wayne in a, in a minute, is uh really this this idea that evangelicals really identify as you know bible believing christians and if you ask them you know what does it mean to be evangelical they will talk about their theology and 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 in their bible believing right and have this understanding that their entire view of the world of war of what's happening in israel right now of masculinity of whether women should work outside of the home anything is biblical right as a cultural historian what i show is and change over time, so much change over time, and how much cultural movements and secular ideals and symbols end up shaping and redirecting that quote-unquote biblical Christianity, right? And so John Wayne is just one example, and, and there's a real disconnect there, but I can show how historically, not who he was as a person, although a little bit, right? You know, he was uh, definitely a, a supporter of right-wing politics and um, republicanism as, as it kind of sorts itself out in the political realignment, um, said some fairly racist things, uh, pro-war, you know, and so forth. So he he does, as a person, kind of fit this political um, agenda. But much more than that, he emerges as a symbol, a symbol of traditional white masculinity, the good guy with the gun who will bring order through violence, right? This heroic image that then becomes conflated with, quote unquote, biblical manhood. And so you can see in in, um, in evangelical books on masculinity, they love their heroes, absolutely love their heroes, like this constellation of heroes. And he is one of many. And the the point that I um, that struck me when I first read these books, which I started this research back in around 2004 and 2005. So I've been watching this space for a long time. And when I first read some of the initial books that were incredibly popular in the early 2000s on Christian manhood, I was actually really shocked how little of the Bible was in these books, how little theology and how much Hollywood, how much of this kind of heroic imagery of masculinity, John Wayne, William Wallace, cowboys and and warriors, 
And again, just how little actual scripture was in there. And that's really what the title is doing. It's rooting it in this kind of cold war, good guy with the gun masculinity, but it's also making this point that, uh, you know, there's, there are secular cultural influences that are really shaping their understanding of Jesus Christ and of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be an American. Um, and so, so that's the, the John Wayne. Uh, and then I will say, you know, people like Michelle Bachman and, and others celebrate, um, Trump as kind of this uh, reincarnation of John Wayne. And this is a motif that comes over and over again. If you read the book, you'll see it just keeps popping up. You know, what is a Christian man look like? Well, we all know John Wayne. Yeah, I mean, I I find that actually harder to understand than I do the Mel Gibson thing, because after all, Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson chose to make the movies that he chose to make because, among other things, he has certain uh, fundamentalist religious convictions. And although I might add he's Catholic, but it works. Leave that aside. It works. It's, it's, a you know, and particularly the, the, you know, the, the Braveheart movie where, where Scotland is a kind of metaphor for modern America mm-hmm. and the desire to, or the willingness to be literally disemboweled uh, while you shout freedom is at some level resonating, I think, with a lot of people's sense of martyrdom, etc. But then to follow that up with, you know, uh, the passion of the Christ, which, of course, um, you know, upset a lot of my people, but is... um, you know, is a is a very particularly inflected version of uh, the passion story. I I can see where the commitment, you know, where the sense of okay, he's speaking for us comes from. I don't understand that with John Wayne, who didn't write the movies, who didn't, you know, he's not, he's just a guy who who, you know. Uh, no, like yeah, well, kind of. He, he reminds me of Trump hiring people to his cabinet because he looks the part, right? And there's there's, right? Something, there's something very weird to me about the confusion of the play acting with the with, with the um with the real thing, and and that you know there's whatever John Wayne is, he, he was not a cowboy, right? Whatever he is, he was not a war hero. In fact, he was something of a draft. The opposite of a war hero. Yes. Um, Yeah. And there's, there's something really weird about the elevation of the presentation of that above the reality. I mean, George McGovern was a war hero, right? Like, yes, I've got um, him on this side, actually. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that until you moved <laughs> your head. Um, all right, uh, Holly, uh, the floor is yours, and you should start by introducing yourself because you have a very interesting subject matter engagement with this uh, whole subject. Yes. And in fact, Kristen is the reason that I'm having, you know, any opportunity to write about this. So Kristen, um, Holly Berkeley Fletcher, I'm a friend of Ben's as well. 
And very uh, nice yeah. to meet you here. Yeah. And I, I follow you all over the internet. And um, anyway, it's uh, great to stalk you on to, to Ben's show now, but um, um, my question. So I wait, take- wait, 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 you yeah. got to do better than that. Holly. Oh. All right. I'm going to say a couple of <laughs> words about Holly because uh, Holly is grew up as the, uh, as a child of, of evangelical missionaries in Kenya and is uh, writing a book about, uh, is it fair to say, the culture of, of, uh, of yeah. missionary life in, in, uh, and growing up in it? Well, yes, it's, but it's through the missionary kid experience. So I'm taking the missionary kid experience and using that insider, outsider perspective to sort of... Um, pierce the mythology surrounding evangelical missions, because I'm sure Kristen can back me up on this. Um, the mission field and missionaries have really been, you know, a centerpiece of evangelicals self-conception yes. since the 19th century. And, you know, as I grew up Southern Baptist and especially in um, Southern Baptist culture, you know, the missionaries are the rock stars. And, you know, I, I grew up with everyone just fawning all over my parents as if they were like Bono. So, yeah. uh, so, so anyway, um, and the missionary kids have a very, as a whole, of course, you have to make generalities, have, have very different experience, but they also go on to become missionaries in great numbers and have sort of perpetuated this system that may have otherwise, um, you know, as Christianity has successfully spread and has, as the global South has become more the center of Christianity, you know, the missions movement, American missions may have declined a bit, except, uh, well, for a couple of reasons, it's still that it's so central to evangelical self-conception and sense of heroic calling. Um, and also because missionary kids um, go into the mission field in such great numbers. So anyway, that's a nutshell, but. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Uh, you're, All right. Now Sorry. you can ask your question. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Um, yeah, Kristen. So I take your point that, um, you know, inerrancy is kind of a bit of, you know, a fig leaf and, and can be adjusted um, based on other cultural and um, political needs. But um, it it is for me, having grown up in, evangelicalism and then moving into a progressive, more progressive um, Christian space. It's really the line in the sand, you know, that I, I had so much fear crossing over. Like I felt like it was like this perilous, you know, this boundary um, that I was crossing over. And I wonder if you could speak about how, to what extent it is a unifying force in evangelicalism still and how maybe it became that way. Um, and I think, does that even include elites? Like, I think Russell Moore is still would identify as an, as an inerrant. I think David French identifies as an errantist. Um, these people who are not Trumpers, but they're still, um, I think it's, I, you know, I wrote a post about it, but, um, I, I think it's a very problematic, um, idea, but, uh, um, but I, yeah, I find it interesting. There's still, you know, a lot of elite, you know, more enlightened thinkers that still um, mm-hmm. grasp onto it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much has, has been elevated to a test of 
you know, are, are you a real Christian or not? And that is the the line in the sand. And, and, and just, I, just for those who don't know the theological terminology, oh. inerrancy is the idea that the uh, Bible is literally true in all sentences. Yes. Uh, well, yes. I mean, uh, there's, this is, this is the rub. Um, so, you know, the inerrant word of God is inspired, it is authoritative. And what goes along with that is this idea of the plain reading of the scripture that anybody can just pick up the Bible and the, the meaning is super clear and it is authoritative. But what I challenge well, anybody to do that with the, with the second sentence of Genesis in Hebrew. I just, <laughs> just well, want to say the words tohu vavohu uh, translated as a void of nothingness sometimes or doesn't have literal meaning. So, so right. And, and you'll, um, I think I, I will often get in trouble in um, social media spaces and conservative evangelical spaces, right? Because I, even though I grew up very conservative Christian, my tradition didn't define inerrancy in the same way. And again, they they define themselves against the evangelical view of inerrancy, which they thought flattened the scriptures. And so my tradition gives much more attention to historical context and to interpretation. And the argument, the kind of critics of inerrancy say inerrantists do every bit as much uh interpretation around the text but just don't admit that they do it right and so one of the things that i do in my book is and i'm, I'm drawing on the scholarship of other historians um, particularly seth dowland and elizabeth flowers who have done more extensive work and and betsy flowers is currently writing a whole book uh, or a second book on on the topic but what they show is uh, all you have to do is start saying okay so this is what they say about the word of god and then yeah you start picking other passages that don't get the same inerrancy treatment, right? Um, those passages about selling all of your possessions and giving it to the poor. Oh, wait, 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 we have, we have, we have an explanation for that. Or it's, you know, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man, you know, into the kingdom of heaven. And, and wait, no, 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 we have an explanation for that. But then no explanation can be given to the kind of flattened, plain reading of the scripture on particular verses, especially those having to do with gender and hierarchy, right? So that's all that the book does is shows when and kind of how the issue of inerrancy became a defining feature. And it's not that uh, evangelicals or conservative Protestants didn't treat the scriptures in that kind of a, a way in, in the early 20th century, right? That's kind of the fundamentalist uh, legacy. Um, but even the categories, any kind of religious historian will say, are can only kind of exist in a modern era. As soon as you get to the pre-modern era, the approach to the scriptures was very different, which doesn't mean you just toss them aside. It doesn't mean you can make them say anything you want, but it does mean that there's a whole lot more kind of flexibility um, and fluidity in terms of how those scriptures are interpreted, have been interpreted. What evangelicals, conservative evangelicals do is, is just flatten that and really deny that there's that those interpretive strategies that they too approach the scriptures with particular lenses. I think that what runs really through white evangelicalism and American white evangelicalism is a sense of not even understanding that they, they don't often identify, self-identify as evangelical. When you ask them what they are religiously, their answer is very simple. They're Christian. Christian. They're Christian. 
right? And, and there's so much power in that, that they understand their way of approaching scriptures is default. It is truth. Whereas any other tradition kind of, you know, you have to define yourself against them. And, you know, Catholics might all over in their own space have, you know, the same kind of sense of truth and centrality, but they also in this country know that they have to define themselves as Catholic to identify themselves. Evangelicals, they are simply Christian default, right? So then their views of what kind of verses get the inerrancy treatment very um, little kind of self-reflection interrogation on, wait, why this and why not this? And when did this happen and why? And as soon as you ask those questions, you will be called a heretic. <laughs> you may well lose your job. And and yes, as um, Holly said, like that, that line is still very starkly drawn. And there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens around it. All right. So I want to ask about two other traditions that are related uh, and don't seem to have developed the particular pathology that you describe. The first is conservative Catholics. Why does this cult of masculinity not develop in the Catholic Church in the same? I mean, some of the people who are key to developing it in the evangelical tradition Mel Gibson, Phyllis Schlafly are Catholics, but the Catholic tradition, whatever other problems it may have in this period, doesn't seem to have a cult of masculinity. Why does this develop in in the evangelical world and Catholics participate in the development of it in the evangelical world, but it's not a feature of the Catholic world? Yeah, not so much, right? So I, I'm not an expert on Catholic history, but I did go to Notre Dame. So uh, I have some street cred there. Um, and, and I've actually talked with a number of Catholic historians uh, about this and, and been kind of trying to nudge a couple to write a, a book on kind of the Catholic version of Jesus and John Wayne. And um, really what I would go back to is politically, they end up um, on the same page. And kind of from top down, so these political alliances, right, the the rise of the Christian right, Phyllis Schlafly is a great example, back to the 60s, 70s, and, and those political alliances really hold firm. And we see the fruits of them today, especially around Supreme Court appointments. Culturally, they are almost entirely separate through much of this history, So uh, Catholic publishers publish their own literature. There are Catholic bookstores, right? The the devotional literature, there's Catholic radio. I mean, I was just down at at Notre Dame last weekend. And uh, as I came into town, I was just like flipping through radio stations and I landed on not Christian radio, right? Christian, right? Which is evangelical Catholic radio. <laughs> I, I made my, my daughters listen along with me and they're just like, you know, why do they just keep saying the same phrase over and over again? And, and, you know, 
hear our prayer, hear our prayer, hear our prayer. What even is this? Like, welcome to Catholicism. You know, this is a a whole different thing. And the popular culture is just um, its own thing. And so its own kind of symbolism, its own devotional strategies. You have a different tradition of masculinity, both in terms of families, in terms of the priesthood, in terms of kind of the Jesuit tradition, for example. And and you have um, just a, a very different cultural context there. Um, But again, you do see this overlap top down and increasingly and and quite recently, you see more of this kind of um, uh, sharing in symbol, in these ideas of masculinity, in this political identity, which is now trickling down to the cultural identity. All right. So the second tradition theologically closer um, is the black church. Um, and I, I I think it's just fascinating that this is part, I mean, I, I, I take it from the book partly as a function of the sort of lineal descendant of Southern, the Southern white church, but, and that it, but there does seem to be this, centrality of white masculinity to it and the again the 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 black baptist churches the ame churches don't seem to have developed the same thing over the same period despite being theologically quite similar in a lot of ways walk me through that because i i think that's just a fascinating cultural non-development. So I I was trying to decide debating if you were going to go black Protestant or Mormon, right? Because both of those are interesting, interesting. Oh, um, we can do Mormons next. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just thought in Salt Lake city too. So uh, Mormons have been on my mind, but let's, let's talk about the black Protestant tradition, right? You're absolutely right. Theologically, this is where things get interesting. Uh, Actually, if you, if you would listen to somebody like Walter Kim, right? Head of the NAE, wonderful person, or Russell Moore, right? Christianity Today now. Um, And they would define evangelicalism according to this theological rubric that I already um, introduced. And when you do that, the majority of Black Protestants in this country get placed in that evangelical bucket. And so it really frustrates these white evangelical leaders when people talk about white evangelicalism because they want to push back. I mean, Walter Kim himself is Korean American, right? But they want to push back and say, no, evangelicalism is diverse. And you keep, you pollsters, you're the ones who keep breaking us apart. But really, we are all evangelicals here. So evangelicalism is not defined by race. Now, the problem is, there's more than one problem. But one of the problems is that the vast majority of Black Protestants in this country can check those theological boxes, but the vast majority of those who do, do not identify as evangelical very, very clearly because it is super clear to them that there is so much more to being evangelical than those little boxes and what they mean by that, the authority of the scriptures, they don't approach the scriptures in the same white evangelical inerrancy um, mode. And when it comes to conversionism, their understanding of conversion is different. When it comes to living out their faith, activism, right, or evangelism, how they live out their faith in, in the public sphere is almost 
the complete opposite of white evangelicals on almost every political issue with just a couple of exceptions. And so there are just so many differences, which again shows that this is about cultural identity much more than it is about um, theology. But then we can also look at this history and let's look at uh, actual lived experience extremely segregated religious spaces, right? Uh, We do not have Black Protestants and white evangelicals going to the same churches for the most part. Look at the Christian music industry, right? Get into this popular culture. Talk Talk with folks on the inside of that industry. I'm actually doing that for my next book. And they will tell you that their audience is white, And you can have a couple of Black singers that get some airtime every once in a while, but their audience is is white. And you talk to any Black evangelical who has spent time in white evangelical spaces, and they will tell you all about how much race matters, how much whiteness matters. If you ask a white evangelical how much race matters, they will say not at all. And they have this idea of colorblindness and insist that they are colorblind and that everybody should be colorblind. And that's the way God made you, right? And then that masks then just how much their own tradition, their own culture, their own church is shaped by their white identity. Anybody from the outside can see that. White people who have only lived in the center of that are often blind to their their the way that their white identity, their history, their communities, who they, where they worship, where they live, the food they eat, all of these things. It's not visible to them that this is actually part of a cultural tradition and not just, again, generic Christianity. Christianity. Yeah. But, okay, so that explains the cultural context of the white evangelical mm-hmm. church. But there's still this question why the same factors that lead to this masculinity cult in the white evangelical church doesn't have a parallel development in theologically similar black churches that, you know, just kind of develops. I mean, it really does suggest that what's going on here is not a function of religion that it's a function of um, kind of white sense of threat and displacement. Oh, exactly, exactly, right? Because, um, I mean, if you look at in Black Protestant traditions, you definitely can find patriarchy there. You can absolutely find patriarchy. Um, and uh, you, you tend, though, in the popular literature that I've read um, you know, in, in terms of Black masculinity, and there's much, much, much less, right? There's this, at white evangelicalism, it's just this massive industry. It dominates the, the Christian market. So, so in, in Black Protestant spaces, much, much less, but much more of an emphasis on fatherhood than on this kind of rugged, militant masculinity. Now, historically speaking, too, it's worth pointing out that that uh, it was often not safe for Black men to present as militant, as aggressive, as right, as violent. The opposite is necessary, right? It just works differently, historically speaking. And yes, we have to go back to the, the Southern roots here. And of course, kind of the Southernization of America. It's not just the American South. And Black men, men of color, were seen as their aggression was a threat 
and must be contained by, again, the good white guy with the gun. And we could, we could extend that. I mean, historically speaking, um, um, you can just see this out even in terms of purity culture, right? And the emphasis on, on, on white women's purity, historically speaking, and there is um, all kinds of historical literature on that used to justify violence against non-white men. Again, this idea of protector, the, the patriarchal protector, and that just runs through white evangelical uh, cultural identity. And it's just the opposite. You don't have that share that history among black Protestants. You really have the flip side of it. Right. So a white guy who's sporting a gun is a hero and a protector and a black guy who's sporting a gun is Huey Newton. Right. You know, it's a a very different cultural valence. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's talk about purity culture. Um, and um, uh, to set it up, walk us through complementarity. <laughs> oh, yeah. So complementarianism is, um, patriarchy isn't new. Patriarchy isn't new in Christianity. Patriarchy isn't new in, in terms of broader culture. Um, but as a historian, uh I'm focusing on kind of the emergence of a particular form of complement of, of patriarchy that's called complementarianism, which is kind of pitched as this isn't about this isn't inequality. No, men and women are equal. They just have separate roles. So separate but equal. And um, and what that looks like is men are providers and protectors, and they are called to lead in the church and in the home. And the extent to which also it applies to society, there's there's some debate there. But then there's a whole kind of culture that builds up around this kind of core theological idea to expand and kind of uh, flesh out what this looks like. So there's the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. There's the Gospel Coalition, this massive organization that deeply influences tens of thousands of American pastors. Like I talked about my own denomination. I I know that dozens of them were just out a couple of weeks ago at the Gospel Coalition's annual conference, right? And so they are just being shaped by this very distinctive understanding of Christianity and of gender roles. And so men are called to lead, women are called to submit. And then along with that, again, all of these additional rules so that you can get somebody like John Piper debating, you know, can a woman be a police officer? Can a woman be, I don't know, a crossing guard, like anything that that shows leadership? Should a a woman give a a man directions? (laughs) You know, these are the sorts of things that just get built up. A woman should stay at home. In some of the more conservative circles, a woman should not um, uh, work outside of the home. Girls should not go to college. Now, in the more mainstream uh, expressions, that's not the case. But the more conservative expressions, that is. But there's this kind of unity around that, okay, maybe we aren't so extreme, but we understand that those are faithful expressions of, you know, how to be a Christian woman. Whereas if you are a queer woman, right, or if you if you transgress at all, you're just, you're, you're out, right? The gospel coalition, it's 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 the the gospel right the good news of christ foundational core christian teaching 
is defined, right? You are excluded if you don't sign on to this vision of patriarchy complementarianism. You are excluded from that coalition. And again, that coalition then ends up shaping. It's this massively influential global network, um, planting churches around the world, all according to this understanding of this is the only way to be a faithful Christian. Now, some of them, I mean, I've talked with leaders I've talked with Tim Keller about this, one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition, and, you know, kind of went back and forth, and and he didn't like hearing the idea that, you know, the gospel was defined in that kind of narrow, complementarian way, um, but de facto, their gospel coalition was absolutely defined in that way. And he was actually wonderfully understanding and a wonderful conversation partner, and um, I I really appreciated the opportunities I had um, to to chat with him before he passed away recently. So one of the particularly painful chapters in this book, and there are several of them, um, but one of them is the chapter that really catalogs the sex abuse scandals uh, in the evangelical churches. you know, which have gotten a lot less attention than the Catholic analogs have, partly because it's a more decentralized um, and less hierarchical set of institutions. Um, And also partly because there's no clear analog to a priesthood. Um, I was thinking as I was reading it, okay, we've had the the Catholic sex abuse scandals, they're the, these are pretty horrible, although some of them, they've been treated as sort of almost more comical in a lot of instances, because yeah. Tammy Faye Baker is so preposterous, and, you know, there there are some absurd characters in it, and Franklin Graham and the pool boy and that stuff. But um, that's Jerry Falwell. I want to be very uh, clear. Uh, sorry, Not sorry, Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry Falwell Jr. <laughs> my, my apologies. My, my. I need your legal uh, team to scrub. Yeah. Um, the. Um, but then, you know, if you look at the uh, the ultra Orthodox Jewish community, it's awful. Um, and um, and. It gets a lot less publicity outside of the Jewish world because nobody cares what, you know, it's something about being a small group that doesn't proselytize that the rest of the world doesn't care what goes on inside. But um, it does seem to me that, you know, that conservative religious movements in general seem to have a serious sex abuse problem. And I'm curious whether you see the one that you've written about in this book as distinctive or just, hey, this is a movement that's telling, uh, that's giving a lot of power to men and giving um uh, uh telling women to submit and that's a seriously toxic combination particularly played out in tens of thousands of interactions 
between individuals over time or hundreds of millions. Uh, And that's a toxic stew that's not really particular to even white evangelicals. It's actually a function of religious patriarchy. Or is there something distinctive about the evangelical tradition here? Yeah. You know, so so I have to, I've already self-identified as a Calvinist. And Calvinists believe in um, original sin, total depravity, and all of that, right? Which which allows me to, you know, theologically say, no, I don't think that evangelicals are especially evil in this respect. But exactly what you were pointing to, this kind of the teachings mean uh, the teachings of masculine power and of defending the man in power. And of women and girls being taught that they must submit, that they're, they obey God when they obey men. I mean, that is what they are told, that there's this God-ordained hierarchy. And to obey God, you, play, you obey the, the authority that God has placed above you. And for women, that is your husband, your pastor, right? You have to, that is your obedience to God. And, um, and then there's all these teachings we were talking about purity culture, right? About sexuality, about how, um, men, boys will be boys and God created men, filled them with testosterone and they're going to lust and they're going to be tempted. They're going to, and so it's up to women to not seduce them, um, up to, to women who are not their wives. They have to not seduce them. So you have this whole modesty culture and young girls and all of that, and, and uh, really contributes to a blame the victim. But meanwhile, for wives, as soon as, as soon as you, you get married, then it is your responsibility to fulfill all of your husband's sexual needs. Because remember, there are so many of them. And, and if you don't, then he's going to go astray, right? This is the way God made him. This is the, now this sounds really harsh, if you look at, at actual evangelical writings on sex, you are going to come across sentences that sound just like this. It is that blatant. And so either way, so just to be always, clear, you're not parodying it at all here. No, there is always a woman to blame. So even when Ted Haggard, right, ends up having, uh, he's former president of National Association of Evangelicals, big new life church out in Colorado Springs, hub of white evangelicalism, big evangelical superstar kind of in the country. He ends up having an affair with another man. um, and, and, And some are blaming his wife for not meeting his sexual needs, right? I mean, this, this is kind of how far this goes. Or a young girl is the victim of abuse, of sexual abuse, and she is accused of seducing her abuser. That will show up in court records and in um, in in the communities. And, and that's what it came down to for me. I don't have hard evidence that abuse happens more frequently. There's some debate. I, I just find that those numbers are... Um, are so hard to work with because so few cases are actually reported across the board and inside conservative communities. So I don't try to make a claim of there's more here than here. I don't know that that you have those numbers to make that claim. Although I think there's some recent scholarship that suggests that that is the case. What I say is descriptively, when I look at these stories, I can absolutely say that the teachings 
that young girls and women were taught and that men were taught mean that it is very difficult when abuse happens, right? There are bad guys out there. When abuse happens, it is very difficult for women, even victims, to identify that abuse, for communities to call out abuse, for communities to hold the abuser responsible. Time and again, and this is that whole last chapter, you see these good Christian people in churches and in organizations end up supporting the abuser, even when it's very clear what he did. And it's the victim and her family are the ones over and over again who are ostracized, marginalized, and demonized. And I I will say writing that last chapter was incredibly hard to do. And I started it before the Me Too movement. It's painful to read. Um, I hated it. I hated writing it. I hated editing it. I asked my editor more than once, does this really have to be in this book? And um, and we agreed it did because what, what happened is I, again, I started the research long ago, more than a decade earlier. And, and then I set it aside for a variety of reasons, but I didn't stop paying attention. What I saw was one after another of these men who had promoted this militant, rugged masculinity became implicated in scandal over the years. Sexual abuse, abuse of power, either directly as perpetrators or indirectly defending their friends who are perpetrators. And I just kept tabs. I didn't even think I was going to write a book. I don't even know what I was doing. I just noticed this. And so when I did decide I need to write this book in the days after the Access Hollywood tape, release and days after the election really clinched it. That's when one of the first things I did is I actually consulted a lawyer because all of these stories with just a couple of exceptions weren't in the newspapers. They were on survivor blogs. And if you were paying attention, these stories were out there, but you had to be paying attention. And and so I was planning on using them. I think I was thinking, okay, there's so much legal liability here. How am I going to do this? And while I was working my way to the final chapter, Me Too happened, and then the Church Too movement corresponding. We had the Houston Chronicle expose of abuse in the SBC. We had all sorts of these stories bubbling up and getting national media attention, in which case, you know, they were all, almost all of them had some media coverage. And so it made legal review a whole lot easier for that final chapter. But it was absolutely devastating, I will say, you know, as a Christian and as a Christian woman to read and to hear the experiences of these women who were faithful Christian women. They were trying to do what was right, what is good. Um, They were trying to obey, and they were absolutely um, abused and thrown under the bus by their own pastors, churches, sometimes even families, and those stories are absolutely devastating. And obviously, there's resonances then with... um, with Access Hollywood, because in those those days after that video released, and we saw the evangelicals were not breaking from Trump, that's when it clicked for me. And all I thought is, we've seen this before. We have seen this before over and over again in their own organizations. They support abusers if they think that that man is going to do God's work, and they will prop up his authority, and they will throw women under the bus. Yeah, so... Um... What is the pushback? The you have this, it's a giant community. As you describe, there's a lot of there's you know some diversity within it in terms of uh uh people's politics. You've described a lot of people who 
uh, are uncomfortable with. Uh, we've heard from some of them who are no longer, you know, meaningfully part of this community. Is is there an internal? You know, I, I, I've talked to Russell Moore. He's still part of it, but he's quite marginalized at this point, right? Um, at Like, what is the mechanism by which this culture changes? Does it have a capacity for internal reform or is it, or is there, I, I don't know, what, what, what does the pushback look like? Such an important question. And um, first off, yes, there is diversity within white evangelical spaces. Absolutely. Even if we just look at the the kind of polling data, 81%, right? The infamous 81% supporting Trump. That does leave 19% of white evangelicals who did not. There is always, in the words of historian David Swartz, a moral minority, right? The progressive evangelical movement, folks like um, Shane Claiborne and, and Jim Wallace, right, still out there, still doing their thing. And within even conservative evangelical spaces, there's a range of views and there's a commitment to complementarianism that may be in lived experience. They're, they're egalitarians, um, but, you know, they will pay lip service to these ideas. There's so much diversity. I mean, not like the whole range of diversity, but within conservative evangelicalism, right there, there is, um, there is uh, a whole spectrum. What happens though, when you look at evangelical institutions, this is where you have to, it's not just 81 and 19, right? You have to look at the power dynamics and who controls the boards of organizations, who are the big donors, who can exert the pressure, what are these networks and alliances? How do they function? How does gatekeeping work in these spaces? And Russell Moore can tell you how gatekeeping works, right? I mean, on both sides of it, right? Uh, if you go back into his own history. And so what what I've observed, first of all, um, a, a, a pretty big portion of, I'm, I'm convinced the readers of Jesus and John Wayne and the folks who are keeping it in this kind of best-selling status it, are evangelicals themselves, many of whom are still inside those spaces. And they read it and say, this is true. This makes so much sense of my world. And then when they start to push back, right, that was your question. Who's pushing back? What does that look like? Over and over again, I've seen the same patterns. Everything's fine. You don't even realize where the boundaries are drawn until you start pushing, right? Ask David French how that goes. As soon as you start pushing, you're going to see where the limits are and the pressure is going to come. If you're a pastor, the pressure is going to come from your church, maybe your elder board, and you're going to reach a crossroads often very quickly. Either you shut up and we'll be fine. Or you keep talking, you keep pushing, go find another job. In organizations, the same thing in Christian schools, in Christian colleges, sometimes these controversies bubble up and we get a glimpse of them. The vast majority of the time, they do not. They don't make the headlines. NDAs are, uh, are signed or people just go quietly because this is their church family. This is their community. They don't want to, to destroy. And, and evangelicalism too has thrived in, in you know, I, I said that the extent to which people are enmeshed in this culture varies. But for many people, they are almost wholly situated inside evangelicalism. Their church 
they have small groups, they might send their kids to Christian schools or they homeschool, right? Their families are just embedded in this really thick web of relationships. And it is very, very hard, very painful to start to extricate yourself from that. Very painful to be pushed out. People that you thought you had so much in common with, right? This is Russell Moore's story. All of a sudden you realize none of that matters. None of that matters. If if you don't toe the line on, in, in this case, support for Trump. If you speak out against abuse, I mean, look at somebody like Karen Swallow Pryor, another evangelical figure. She got pushed out of Liberty University and she got pushed out again when the place that she landed, uh, uh, I think it was Southeastern uh, Seminary, SBC school. And, you know, what, 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 what did she do that was so, did she go liberal? Like, no, she criticized Trump and she spoke out on behalf of um, women who were abused. That was enough to make her an outsider, right? So again, is this the theology or is there something else going on? Yeah, so let's talk about the reaction to you. Um, You wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne that is a pretty frontal attack, uh, analysis uh, of and critique of uh, the masculinity cult within modern evangelical conservative life and um and you attribute a lot of bad things to it from uh highly uh a hypocritical support of Donald Trump to sex abuse to uh a lot of people thinking they're living Christian lives when in fact what they're doing is, uh, you know, uh, cosplaying as John Wayne. Um, and that's the innocent side of it. And and through the whole thing, there's a subtext of monetization, which you don't talk about explicitly but you do note repeatedly how many books people are selling. Yes. Thank you for you noticing. Um, oh yeah, no, no. I mean, I, you know, those numbers are astonishing. Yes. Just how many books people are selling by doing this stuff. Um, if I were the one of them, I wouldn't have liked this book very much. What is the reaction to, I mean, other than a very large number of people reading it and seeing themselves in it, um, which must be very gratifying, how has the reaction to you been among the people that you've been critical of and the culture that you've been critical of? Yes. You know, what's really funny is I gave so little thought to the book's reception. So little thought. I'm an academic. I'm a historian. First of all, we academics aren't really accustomed to people reading our books uh you know the average academic no one would have if you'd called it jesus and the (laughs) bell gibson character and (laughs) your publisher was right 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 so i um uh you know i i just i gave so little thought to it all i wanted to do was get the story right i was obsessed with getting it right And as I saw the pieces come together, as I fit them together, I just wanted to present that story. Once it clicked into place, I wanted to present it as powerfully as possible. And and that's the book. And then the book came out. And um, 
the, if, I mean, anybody who's on Twitter, um, can see that sometimes it's kind of brutal. Um, there are certainly people who, um, detest me and the book. There has been very, very little intellectual engagement, um, critical engagement of any kind of legitimacy, uh, questioning my sources, my use of evidence, my argumentation, you know, based on my evidence, anything like that. Instead, there has been a whole lot that um, has, you know, kind of called me a heretic or a wolf or a false teacher or um, other things. Um, And a lot of kind of complaining that um, I wasn't nice to evangelicals. I should have written about their good thing, their good qualities too. And um, that, that kind of critique. So yeah, I will say it's been um, from certain corners, it's been relentless. And um, at the same time, it doesn't, it sometimes it's tiring. Um especially to have kind of the just complete misrepresentations of me or the book out there. And sometimes I will engage and just set the record straight. Sometimes I just let it go. I will say though, um, first of all, it's kind of thrilling to um, write a book that so accurately, I think captures a moment and even captures the critics and, and, they ought to be, if, if I got my story right, they ought to be livid, right? And they ought to feel threatened because of what I have exposed, right? It kind of pulled back the veil on their whole system. And so I get it. I do not take it personally, even if they intend it to be taken personally. I have a very hard time taking it personally. Let me say that because I, I get them. I, I, I understood them before they even knew I existed. I spent years studying how they treat people, how they treat women, right? So when this comes at me, it just, I get it. Um, and having that understanding makes it um, just just not personal. And I, I, for up until now, I've only written about people who were dead. And so there is something thrilling just having like my historical subjects speak to me, even if they're unpleasant words, you know, it's just kind of cool that, oh, wow, you know, yeah, um, that they're actually reading my account of them is kind of fun always. And, um, and then I, I will uh, return to the fact that what I didn't expect in as much as I thought about reception, I didn't expect the incredibly um, positive response, including among many conservative white evangelicals, um, not just kind of big name folks like, uh, you know, Beth Moore or Russell Moore has been very gracious and Walter Kim and others who have really engaged the book said, you know, okay, might not agree on every um, point made, uh, not surprisingly, but really that there is there is truth there that can help them understand what they've been experiencing. Just really shine a light on it and explain their lives to themselves. I get a lot of that, not just from the kind of top leaders, but every single day, every day since the book has come out, I get emails from readers, pastors, Um, people have been in evangelical spaces 30, 40, 50 years, just saying, thank you. Thank you for helping me to see. And what has the reaction been at your home institution? You are, after all, a professor at a conservative uh, uh, Calvinist college. Um, Mm -hmm. What what is the 
I, I mean, you've just described, you know, a culture in which you step out of line and the first thing happens is that somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, you don't want to do that. And the next thing that happens is you lose your job and it all gets <laughs> hushed up. Um, yes. When I met you, you gave me a card with your, your, your email as, as <laughs> Calvin.edu. And, you know, I'm still using that to reach you. What's your, what's your magic, uh, 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 I don't want to use a witchcraft metaphor because that gets get people in trouble. But uh, what what's the what what's the trick that you're using to keep yourself uh, uh, safe? Uh, well, I mean, I think my first trick was not being afraid to lose my job, uh, and I, I just I, I I knew I needed to write this book, and I knew I I needed to not hold back, and I didn't know if it would cost me my job, and. Um, you know, uh, before it published, I had a colleague here at Calvin come up to me and say, you know, Kristen, uh, is this, is this book going to get you fired? And I said, I don't know. Do you want to read it? So I sent him the manuscript and he he read it and he came back and said, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's a work of history, right? The evidence is there. The argument is there, but as you suggested, that doesn't mean that you're safe. But then he said this, this really great thing um, that was so, so true. Um, he said, don't worry, Kristen, um, we all have your back here at Calvin until we don't. <laughs> and that's, that's how these, these things work. Like I get it. So I went in with my I eyes like how wide open. He was about it though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's just be honest here. Let's be honest. I, I really want honesty. And, and so I didn't know, I didn't know um, how things were going to go. Um, and I tried not to make things worse for, you know, so I'd always identify myself as author of Jesus and John Wayne, not as professor of history at Calvin, just to, you know, take, take it easy on my president. And, and then maybe about a year into, uh, after the book had been out for a year, um, Daily Wire picked up on it and, did did a story and it was really kind of calling their their fan base like can you believe she teaches at a christian college go do your thing right and so my college my president board you know swamped with letters calling for me to be fired so we're gonna see how that worked out you know and um and how recently was that that was two years ago now and and what my president came back and it was a previous president um of our institution and said, you know, it's, it's a work of scholarship and we defend academic freedom. And, uh, and it's as simple as that. That is so incredibly rare in Christian college spaces. So huge shout out to Calvin university and my new president, he's been here a year, huge backer. And I cannot express how critical that is in so many, I I travel to a lot of universities and churches and Christian colleges and I get asked so many times, um, how do you do what you do, right? Because the dynamics you described are the reality for so many. And I'm getting phone calls and I'm, I'm, I'm having all these stories come to me and it is rough out there. People are being picked off. They're being purged. Calvin is not doing that. And um, people forget um, that this is the, the origins of the concept of tenure was to protect exactly this that's what academic freedom is supposed to do um and so um so far so good you know i think that the pressures are real i have not asked how much you know donor support they have lost because of this book um i do know that this is also you know calvin is christian reformed it is evangelical adjacent there has always been 
this strong tradition of social justice and conservatism side by side in this tradition. And so I'm not the first progressive faculty member. Um, you know, we had faculty members protesting the war in Vietnam. We had, you know, building the evangelical left, all of that. So I'm not the first one. And um, still, I, I don't take it for granted, not at all. We are going to leave it there. Kristen DeMay, you are a great American. It's a really great book. And um uh and it was it was it was eye-opening to me, even though I have had dinner with you and listened to you speak and had had it summarized for me uh in some detail long before I ever picked it up. Um uh so uh Highly recommended uh, to you all. Uh, and Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. So we will be back. I'm going to take a couple weeks off, folks, because I have a whole bunch of conferences that I need to attend. But we have events scheduled with Yasha Monk uh, about his new book uh, on uh, identity. And we have an event that I'm very excited about. Uh, uh, with a woman named Katja Moyer, who has written a history of East Germany, um, <clears throat> which sounds completely fascinating. So uh, all of this will, um, you will, will keep an eye on the YouTube page. Uh, keep an eye, of course, on Dog Shirt Daily, and we will be back soon. <laughs>